0: Good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha. We're glad you're here with us this morning. My name is Jesse Splann. I'm one of the elders here at Hiawatha. And we are currently in the middle of a big question series this summer. I guess now closer to the end of it. But what that means is that uh, the people who attend Hiawatha get to send in their questions that they have about God or theology or life or whatever it is and then we answer those questions, and that's what we preach on for the summer. So it's a great way, for us as elders it's exciting, because it gives us kind of a barometer of what are people thinking about, what are people wrestling with. And for all of you it's great, because those questions that you've had nagging on your hearts and your minds, you get answered. So, But uh, yes, it is a privilege to be here this morning, a privilege to be preaching this morning. Uh, without further ado, let's get going. So, today's question, why is there a triune God? So, a nice easy question. Short sermon. Um, (laughs) So, a few things by way of introduction before we answer the question. Very important in a series like this, and especially with a topic like this. First, a reminder that a sermon is not a class. This is not going to be comprehensive. Now because we're talking about the Trinity, there's no way it could ever be comprehensive even if we took the rest of our life. But this is in no way going to attempt to be anywhere close to comprehensive. A sermon is not a class. We're going to talk about a few things. There are a lot of other things we could have talked about here on the same topic that would be uh, just as beneficial and just as interesting and exciting, but uh, I picked a few and uh, we'll see why as we go on. And then second, by way of introduction, I'm going to give a uh, definition and an extremely partial, very brief explanation of what we mean when we use the word triune or trinity. And I'm going to use those words interchangeably this morning. So when we talk about trinity, we're talking about God. And as Christians, we believe there's only one God, not multiple gods. But we have God the Father, Jesus, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it's like, well, that sure sounds like three gods, not one God. So there are three statements we use that uh, explain this paradox. First statement, there is one God. Scripture is very clear that there is one God. God says in Deuteronomy, I am God, there is no other. In Isaiah, he says, I am jealous for my glory. I will not share it with another. I am the only God. He asks Israel, do you know any other rock? No, there are none. From beginning to end, from everlasting to everlasting, I am God and there is no other. There is one God. The second statement, God exists in three persons. As we read through the Gospels in the New Testament, Jesus is very clearly God. He is not just this man that God likes or that God gave supernatural power to, to do miracles and teach really well and be able to basically read minds and hearts and know what people are thinking. He is God. He is treated as God. He speaks about God as if they are equals. There are a few times where he makes statements to the religious rulers, and their response is literally to pick up rocks and drag him to the end of a cliff to try and kill him. And the reason is because the statements he made were saying, in effect, I am God, worship me. So uh, Jesus is very clearly God, and then we see also the Holy Spirit is very clearly God. And they're distinct. Jesus prays to the Father. And it's not like he stands here and says, Father, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So, God exists in three persons. And the third statement, each person is fully God. So this is where the math breaks down. Because the math is not 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3. Nor is the math 1 third plus one third plus 1 plus equals 1. Nor is the math 1 cubed. 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1 is as close as we can get, which is technically still not 100% accurate, but it's good enough for uh, our purposes. But there you go. So that is a, a definition and a partial explanation which leaves many questions. There is one God. God exists in three persons. Each person is fully God. And you'll notice if you take any one of those three statements away, you don't really have an issue. You have other issues with, how the Bible presents God, but in terms of the logic of it, you don't have an issue anymore. But those three, it's a paradox. It's true, and we can't fully understand it. Logically, it doesn't make sense, but Scripture very clearly presents God in this way. This is who God is. And you'll notice the question there on the top of the page is not how does the Trinity work or explain the Trinity to me. The question is why is there a triune God? Why does God exist as a Trinity versus existing as a monotheistic God that uh, does not exist in three persons? Or, why is it not polytheistic? Poly meaning many, mono meaning one. Why are there not many gods? So why does God exist as a a trinity? Why is there a triune God? So, second partial explanation. So, this diagram might be helpful for you. if If it is great, if not, just ignore it. So, You've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and there's one God. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But they exist as three persons, so the Father is not the Son. God the Father did not die on the cross for our sins. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Holy Spirit did not send the Son, the Father sent the Son. So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, etc., So, they are all God, there is one God, they exist in three persons, and the three persons are distinct. They are not each other. So, there's your very short, very incomplete, very confusing explanation of the Trinity. But just so that when we use the word triune and trinity, when I say that throughout this sermon, that you kind of have a little bit of an idea of what that means. So now back to the question. Why is there a triune God? Now, there are two main ways that you could think about this question. And we'll use chocolate chip cookies as an example for both of those. So the first question is, you could ask, why is there a chocolate chip cookie? Like, why do chocolate chip cookies exist? Why are those cookies chocolate chip? And the simple answer is, it's like, well, because that's what a chocolate chip cookie is. Like, it's a cookie that has chocolate chips in it, so it's a chocolate chip cookie. That's why there's a chocolate chip cookie. So... The very short answer to this uh, big question is, why is there a triune God? Because that's the way God is. In Exodus 3.14, Moses is talking to God. It's where Moses sees the burning bush. And they're talking to each other and God tells Moses to go to Egypt and talk to Pharaoh and talk to Israel, and Moses says, well, who will I tell them sent me? If they ask, why should we listen to you? Who sent you? What authority are you doing this with? God said to Moses, tell them that I sent you. And Moses says, well, what's your name? What name should I give? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now, this answer feels kind of like a cheat. It's like, well, that's not an answer. God's a trinity because he's a trinity, but it's true, it's like the chocolate chip cookie. Why is a chocolate chip cookie a chocolate chip cookie? Because it's a cookie with chocolate chips, that's just what they are. And scripture very clearly presents that this is who God is. He is who he is. He is a trinity. In the very nature, in the very essence of of who God is, Trinitarianism is part of that. The fact that there is one God who exists in three persons, and each person is fully God. That is how God's existence has always been. That's how God's existence will always be. James 1.17, James writes, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God does not change. He has always been a trinity. He will always be a trinity. He is a trinity right now. That's who God is. All right. Big question answered. We'll pray and we'll be done. And everyone will be satisfied. <laughs> no. So, You can also rephrase the question slightly though, because there's another way to think about it. You can ask, why is there a chocolate chip cookie? And you can mean not why does this cookie exist as chocolate chip, but you can mean, why is there a chocolate chip cookie versus a peanut butter cookie? Or an oatmeal raisin cookie? Why did you choose a chocolate chip cookie versus another type of cookie? And the answer to that with cookies is of course obvious, because chocolate chip cookies are superior to all other cookies, so. (laughs) That's not from God's word, that's just my opinion. If you disagree, that's all right, it's not blasphemy. But you can rephrase the question, why is there a triune God, in the same type of way and ask, what are some things that are unique about a triune God? What are some of the unique characteristics and benefits of having God be triune? And that's how we're going to spend the rest of the morning is talking about that. It's like, okay, God exists as a trinity, but how does that benefit us? What are some of the benefits of God being triune versus if it was polytheistic and there were many gods, or if it was monotheistic and there was one God who wasn't a Trinity? So let's pray and then we will talk about that question. Uh, God, Ecclesiastes 5 says, uh, Much dreaming and many words are meaningless, therefore stand in awe of God. And when we talk about the Trinity, it is we reach that point very quickly where it's difficult to do anything except stand in awe of you. The way that you exist is beyond our ability to understand. There are analogies we can use that can give us flashes of insight, but you are beyond our understanding. In Romans 11, it says your paths are beyond tracing out. That's not just that we don't understand you because we don't have enough information or we haven't spent enough time on it. That's not possible to fully understand you. Who you are and the way that you exist is beyond our ability to comprehend. And that's a good thing, because a God that we have all figured out is not a God at all. I pray that uh, you would be with me as I speak. I pray that you'd help me not to blaspheme, which is very difficult not to do when speaking of the Trinity. And I pray, God, that we would be encouraged and uh, exhorted by your word this morning. Alright, so we're going to look at three things, three benefits that we have because we have a triune God. There are a ton more that we could look at, but these three were picked. Uh, The second two are two of the most important things about a triune God, and this is just a cool thing about it. So a triune God allows us to see the unseen and to know the unknown. In Exodus 33, Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And God responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And then in 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes about God. God who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, Who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So we see from these verses that God is unseen. God the Father is spirit. He does not exist with a physical body like Jesus Christ or like we do. And he's unseen. And so Moses wants to see him. Moses says to God, Show me your glory. And God says, I'll show you my goodness. I'll show you part of my glory, but I can't show you all of me, because if I did, it would destroy you. People can't see me and live. And that's not like some assassin type of thing, like, oh, you see me and now you know too much, so I have to kill you. It's not like that. It's the idea of looking at the sun, and if you look at it too long, you'll go blind because it's so bright. It's that idea. God's goodness is so good and so intense that as sinful people, were we to see the fullness of who he is, it would destroy us instantly. We couldn't handle it. And so what happens is God sticks Moses like in a crack on a mountain, and he puts his hand over Moses and then like walks by him. And once he's walked by, he takes his hand away, and Moses sees his back, but he doesn't see his face. He sees part of God, but he can't see the fullness of it. And then in Timothy, Paul writes... Yeah, God lives in unapproachable light. The light is so intense, it's so bright, you can't even approach it. And you can't see God. No one has ever seen him. So we've got this God who's unseen. But as people, with our five senses, sight is extremely important and we want to see God. So now we've got this dilemma. We've got this God who exists that we want to see, but we can't because he can't be seen. Fortunately, Jesus comes on the scene. In John ten thirty, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So Jesus is God. They are one. And then in John 14, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Philip says, we want to see the Father. And Jesus might be thinking, didn't you read the account in Exodus with Moses? You can't see the Father. He lives in unapproachable light. He can't be seen. No one has ever seen him. But you don't have to see him. Look at me. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So the fact that God is a trinity, it makes the invisible God visible. It makes that which is unseen, seen. When Jesus Christ became incarnated and took on flesh, now God is walking around. Now we can see God. 1 John, in 1 John, John writes... We saw God. We heard his voice. We touched him. We saw him right in front of us. So a triune God allows us to see the unseen. But it also allows us to know the unknown. In John 16, this is right before Jesus is about to be crucified, and he's talking to his disciples and telling them, I'm going to leave you now. And they're sad. They wanted him to stick around. And Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, another phrase for the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In Romans 11, it says God's paths are beyond tracing out, that the the richness of his wisdom and his mind are beyond our ability to know. We cannot fully know God. He's more than we can know. His wisdom is richer, his knowledge is greater. It's beyond tracing out. If you tried to trace it, it wouldn't be possible. But the Holy Spirit guides us into truth. He guides us into knowledge we would not otherwise have or otherwise be able to have. And look at how that happens in these verses. So the Spirit guides us into truth, and what truth does he guide us into? Whatever he hears. And what does the Spirit hear? He hears what Christ tells him. But all that Christ has is from the Father. All that the Father has is mine, he says. So the Father has this knowledge, this wisdom, and then Christ shares in that because Christ is God. And then Christ shares that with the Spirit, who is also God, and then the Spirit, who for believers actually dwells within us, then reveals that to us and guides us into truth. So now we're able to know that which was unknown before. We're able to know that which we couldn't have known apart from God, at least not in any real meaningful way. So a triune God allows us to see what's unseen And also to know what's unknown. And so now God is not unknowable. We can know him, not fully, but we can know him truly. And you can know things truly that you don't know fully. I know things truly about some of the components of my car and how they work, but I don't know it fully. There are other things I'd rather learn than the details of everything about how my car works. But I don't need to know it fully to know it truly. Similar with God. We can't know him completely. We can't know him fully, but we can know him truly. Because he is a trinity. Without a triune God, there is no grace. Some verses from the beginning of John. Uh, And when it talks about the word here in the beginning of John, that's Jesus. The word is Jesus. And you can see that if you read... The context of the rest of John chapter 1, which we're not going to read the whole thing, but uh, the word is very clearly Jesus. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So again, this idea That Jesus Christ is God. He was with God the Father from the beginning, and he is God. And if we read in the beginning of Genesis, we see that God created all things. And here in John, we find out that God did that creation through Jesus Christ, that Jesus was involved in creation itself. Moving on to verse 14. And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So without a triune God, there is no grace. Because grace comes to us through Jesus Christ the Son. The Father sends the Son the Son comes, and through the Son, we receive grace. It says here, the sun comes full of grace and truth. So we receive not just a little grace, or not just a sliver of grace, but Christ is full of grace. And we receive that, grace upon grace. The idea of not just a singular instance of grace or a little grace, but it's grace upon grace. Going back to cookies, like cookies upon cookies, dozens upon dozens. A grace that just keeps coming, that overflows. From Christ's fullness we receive grace. It comes through Christ. Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. God is rich in mercy. And the riches of his grace are immeasurable. So much is the amount of grace that he has and that he pours out on us. It can't be measured. It's unmeasurable. So rich is it. But that comes to us through Christ. By grace we're saved through Jesus. So we experience this awesome richness and fullness of grace that God has for us through Jesus Christ. So then you might ask, okay, like it says that, but why did it have to come through Christ? Like, why couldn't God just give us grace apart from Christ? Why couldn't He just pour that out if He had it already? Romans 3 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So, word definition, propitiation, if you're not familiar with that word, that word refers to the turning aside of God's wrath. So, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each of us in this room, myself, all of you sitting there, we're all sinners. Which means we have fallen short of God's glory. We have failed to live up to the standard that God sets in himself. We have failed to meet that. We are not God. We sin. We do evil. We go against his desire for us. All of us have. And that's a problem because God is holy and he's righteous. And so he can't just tolerate sin. He can't just say, oh, it's no big deal because it's a big deal. And he can't just forget about it and say, oh, we'll just pretend it never happened. Because it happened. If God is going to be just, he has to punish our sin. But he also wants to be the justifier. He wants to make us righteous and make us just. So how does he do that? If he can't just say it's no big deal, if he can't just forget about it, if he has to punish us for our sin, if that sin has to be punished, how can he both punish and be just and also be the justifier of us at the same time? The answer is Jesus. So Jesus comes and in our place dies. The death that we deserved from God because of the sin we had done, Jesus took for us. And the only reason that that works and God is able to be just and pour out wrath on Christ and then have Christ be the propitiation. So God's wrath is poured out on Christ and the wrath I deserved from God that would have led to my death is turned aside to Jesus So now God is just because he's punished that sin in Christ's death. But he's also now the justifier of me because Christ was raised from the dead. And now as I believe that Christ has forgiven my sins, that what happened on the cross was sufficient to pay that penalty, now God is still just because he punished sin. And he's the justifier of me because he's now made me righteous. And that only works because God is a trinity. Because Jesus Christ, it says, became sin on the cross. Not became sinful or became a sinner, but he became sin. And so Jesus Christ, the Son now, hanging on the cross, becomes sin. God the Father has not become sin. He is still holy and righteous, and so now he can punish sin. And he can pour out that wrath on Christ because Christ has become sin. If God is not a trinity, that doesn't work. If God is monotheistic but he's not a trinity, God can then not become sin and still be righteous and punish that sin in that same moment. It only works if he's a trinity. It only works if one person of the Godhead can become sin and another person of the Godhead, Godhead can pour out wrath on that sin. Also, if it's polytheistic, it doesn't work because then you have multiple gods, so they're separate things. So punishing one god doesn't necessarily appease the other god. So it only works If you have one God who exists in three persons. If it's not a trinity, it doesn't work. So that's why without a triune God, there is no grace. That's why God couldn't just pour that grace out on us without Christ. Because then he'd have to, in effect, be saying either, oh, it's no big deal or we'll just forget about it. Or say, well, in the moment I'm forgiving this, I've become sin, so there's some issues now with holiness, but, you know, we'll just make it work. No, that doesn't work. For God to be just and punish sin and be the justifier and show us mercy, and as Ephesians says, pour out an unmeasurable amount of grace on us, there has to be a trinity. One person of the Godhead has to die and be punished, but another person has to do that. Without a trinity, there is no grace. So the third thing we'll talk about today, the final thing, without a triune God, there is no love. Love as we know it and love as we experience it cannot exist without a triune God. And I don't just mean the love we have, those of us who are believers in relationship with God, the love he has for us and the love we have for him. Anyone in this room, even those who don't believe in God, who have love, whether in your family, with your friends, with your children, with your spouse, uh, with your parents, whatever it might be, love as we know it cannot exist without a Trinitarian God. So, John 17 and John 14. Uh, John 17, Jesus is praying to God the Father. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then in John 14, Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So notice in John 14, he doesn't say, I do as the Father commanded, so that I love the Father. The doing, of the doing what the Father commanded is not what generates that love. He says, I love the Father, but so that all of you in the world can know that, I do what the Father has commanded in me, to demonstrate that love so you can see it. And John 17, Jesus says of the Father, you love me before the foundation of the world. Long before we existed, before anything existed, before Genesis 1, all that was, was God. But God existed even then, in eternity past as a trinity. And because of that, there was love. Without a trinity, it's not possible to have love because there's no relationship. If God's monotheistic, but he's only one, and he doesn't exist in multiple persons, there is no love. Because there's nothing to love. There's no other person. There's no love relationship. There's no back and forth. So if that's God's existence, then we have a problem because then God created us so that he could love, which means he was deficient before he created us. He lacked love. And so he created us to fill a need he added himself. And that's a very dangerous thing. Because if that's true, which it isn't, but if that was true, that means what happens when we fail to fulfill that need? Well, then he dumps us and finds something else that fills it better. But that need was already fulfilled within himself because he exists as a trinity. So love existed before he had created anything else. He did not create us because he was lacking. He already had love. He already had a love relationship within the trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. They loved each other. Love existed long before anything else. And so he created us not because he was deficient And needed love or needed relationship. He created us because so great was his love and so wonderful was that relationship that he wanted to share it. He wanted to show himself off. He wanted to show off his glory. He wanted us to be able to experience that love. But not because there was deficiency or there was need that was unmet. It was an overflow of that. And so he created, and he created people to experience love and to need relationship. And we see that in our lives. The first human relationship that God created was a marriage. A relationship that at its core has love as one of its key core pieces. Love between a man and a woman, as we see in Genesis. And out of that love comes family, comes other things. I think about my parents and their marriage, and obviously out of that marriage has come me and my brother. So that's one expression of that, one tangible expression of that love. But there are lots of others. I think about the people who've spent time at my house, whether family members or my brother and I growing up there or friends of ours that would come over and how that love was evident in that house, the way my parents loved each other. Imperfectly, of course, because they're sinners. They've loved each other well. They have a great marriage, but it's certainly imperfect. They are not God. They'd be the first to admit that. But, People experience that love that they had for each other. They would come over and they would experience, like, oh, yeah, your parents are really nice or they're really kind or this, that, or the other thing. That love that God created, that love relationship of marriage, is something that is not just beneficial to the couple, but to their children, to their friends, to their family, to other people. Love as we know it in the world exists because of the Trinity, because God loved first, before anything else existed. God existed, and there was love. John 15, 9, Jesus speaking, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. From Romans 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And from 1 John, we love because he first loved us. Make no mistake about that. That last verse is extremely important. We love because God first loved us. God initiated love with us. And out of that comes our love, both for him and for other people. Romans talks about how it happens. So the Holy Spirit, again, part of the Godhead, he does not only lead us into truth, like we talked about before, and knowledge, but also God has, God's love is poured into us through the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus say in the Gospels? How does he say that people will recognize Christians? He doesn't say people will know you are Christians by all the cool theological answers you can give, or by all the scripture you know, or by all the things you can say about who God is and what he's done. They will know you're Christians by the way you love each other. The way Christians love each other is different than how the world loves. Because all people are created in God's image, love does exist to some degrees in the world. A parent who is not a believer can love their child. Jesus says in the Gospels, if a child asks you for bread and you're not a believer, you don't give them a poisonous snake and kill them. You give them bread because they're hungry and you love them. So love, can st- love still exists, but the fullness of love does not exist apart from God. That's poured into us through the Holy Spirit and then overflows out of us to other people in our relationships. Love comes from God Through the Holy Spirit and through what Christ did on the cross, his death and his resurrection is what makes it possible for us to love. God takes us from enemies in that moment, not just to friends, but to family. He brings us into his family. And now we share in the grace that he has. Now we share in the love that he has. The love that exists among the Trinity is something we now share in. And that should blow our minds. Especially... We don't have time because this would take hours or years. But to read through scripture and to see the love that the Trinity has and how that plays out is really, really cool. And you see this incredible richness of what God's love looks like. And then you think about now as someone who believes that Christ died for my sin and was raised from the dead and now is forgiven that sin and taken it away as I believe in him, I get to share in God's love. The love that the Trinity has I get to share in that. And not only do I get to share in that with God, I get to share that with other people as that overflows out of me, as God pours that into me through his spirit and then it overflows out. I get to share love with people in ways that they've never thought of or experienced before. Ways so different than what the world says love is or what love should be. Ways that are so much richer and deeper and more satisfying because they're grounded in God. Not in ourselves, not in other things in the world. Ephesians 3, Uh, so Paul here is praying for the Ephesian church and he prays that they would uh, know a bunch of different things about God and then says, I want you to know these things so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So a few fun things in here. Notice that God has a four-dimensional love here. To know the breadth and length and height and depth of his love. And also that he wants you to know the love that surpasses knowledge. It's like, well, that's great. How do I know something that surpasses knowledge? There are two pieces to it. One piece is it's that idea again of knowing truly but no not completely. We can truly know God's love. We can know it in true ways, but we don't know it completely. His love is greater and richer than we can ever dream. So we can know the love of Christ, but there are pieces of it that surpass our knowledge. So we can know it partially but not fully. And the other piece is it doesn't say know the love of Christ that's outside of knowledge. It says that it surpasses it. So it encompasses knowledge, but then goes beyond knowledge. But what does Paul want? He wants us to be rooted and grounded in love. How are we rooted and grounded in love? Not by loving other people. Not by thinking loving thoughts. Not by doing loving things. Look at what comes right before that. By having Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. That is the rooting and grounding of love. If you want to be rooted and grounded in love, if you want to be a person of love, if you want to be a person that loves better, the way you do that is not by thinking at all, how can I love better? Because then you're just working for love. And scripture makes it clear, the verses we read from Ephesians, that we're saved by grace. We're not saved by what we do. We don't have to love so that God finds us acceptable. Christ is in our hearts. He dwells in us. That is our rooting and our grounding in love. Christ loved us first. God loved us. Scripture says that God's love was the motivating factor for sending his son to die for our sins. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Not because it was intellectually the wise thing to do or because God was like, well, I've done a bunch of other things for the last trillion years. I guess I'll do this. Haven't done this one yet. God's love motivated him to send his son. God's love motivated him to, to pour out grace on us through Jesus' death and resurrection. God loved us first. And through that love, Christ can dwell in our hearts. And Christ dwelling in our hearts, that is the root and foundation of love. So if you're having problems loving and you're a believer, the solution is not, well, I'll just try harder to love better. The solution is, no, I'll look to the cross, I'll look to Christ, I'll look to what he did. And as that foundation strengthens love improves. And if you're sitting here and you're not a believer, know that God loved you first and he loves you now. The fact that you're here this morning is not an accident. You might think it's an accident or coincidence or maybe you just came because someone invited you. But ultimately you're here because God loves you and he wanted you to hear this. Not because I'm such a great speaker and he wanted you to hear what a great job I do with the words of scripture. He wanted you to hear the message that you need grace because you're his enemy. And that that grace comes through Jesus Christ. And that that grace is available to you because he loves you so much more than you will ever know. And he has riches of grace to pour out on you that are greater than you can imagine. So whatever you might be thinking, well, yeah, he loves me, but he could never really fully forgive me because I did this. It doesn't matter. His grace is so much greater than anything we can do. Paul writes in Romans, as sin increases, God's grace increases anymore. You can't out-sin God's grace. You can't out-hate God's love. So to be rooted and grounded in love is to have Christ dwell in your hearts through faith. And what is the outcome of that, according to these verses in Ephesians? That you would be filled with all the fullness of God. To be filled with the fullness of God is not to have this book memorized and be able to quote it at a moment's notice. It's not to have read through Grudem and know all the answers to all the systematic theology questions. There's certainly nothing wrong with memorizing Scripture. There's certainly nothing wrong with theology and thinking through some of that. But those, having those types of things, are not the fullness, being filled with the fullness of God. To be filled with the fullness of God is to have Christ dwell in your heart through faith, have the grounding of love and to know that love through knowing Christ. To know Christ is to be filled with the fullness of God. And that increases. The more we know him, the better we know him. The more that increases and the more that fullness exists. Those of you who are married, that's reflected on the human level. Those of you who have been married for 10, 20, 30 years... You know your spouse. And you knew them somewhat well when you got married, better than probably most other people did. But then you got married and found out there was a lot you didn't know about them. And you got to know a lot more about them. And you continue to know more about them. And as you know more about them, your relationship is fuller. Your marriage is fuller. There's a richness that exists there. Without a triune God, there is no love. Without a triune God, without God's love for us, we can't love each other. Without Christ dwelling in our hearts, we can't have that root, that foundation of love from which comes fullness of God, being filled with the fullness of God. In conclusion, first, stand in awe of God. God is triune, and there are pieces of that we don't understand. And there are pieces of that we will probably never understand. But we don't have to understand it to believe it's true. And there are things we see in Scripture that show enough of pieces of it. It's like, okay, I can see how this piece works out in the benefit of that. I can see how this piece works out in the benefit of that. To see truth in that. To see it's not just, well, that's just someone's crazy talk that doesn't make any sense. Stand in awe of the triune God. Rejoice that God as a trinity makes it possible for us to know him more fully and see him more clearly. We know him in ways that would have been impossible to do without the trinity. We see him in ways that would have been impossible to see without the Trinity. Rejoice that God, being rich in mercy, has offered us the immeasurable riches of his grace in Jesus Christ. To all of us this morning, the richness, the immeasurable richness of God's grace is offered in Jesus Christ. And we all need that. For those of us who believe, we need that immeasurable richness again today, just like we did yesterday and the day before and the year before. For those of you who are here who haven't experienced that yet, there is immeasurable richness of grace available to you right now through Jesus Christ. And if that perks your interest and you're curious about that, if you came with someone today, ask them about that. If you didn't come with someone today and just wandered in, I'll be down front after the service, feel free to come up and ask me about that. Finally, know that God loved as a trinity long before anything else existed and that we love because he first loved us. That the richness and the fullness of love comes through a relationship with Christ because love is something that existed outside of us, outside of our relationship with God. It existed within the Trinity, within the Godhead. Let us pray. God, we stand in awe of you. uh, As a triune God, a God that... We love and that we know, but that we can never fully understand. We thank you, God, for the grace that you've shown us through your Trinitarian self, for the love that you've shown us, for the experience of those things we could never have had without your nature being Trinitarian. We praise you, God, for who you are. We thank you that you've shown us grace and that you love us. We pray that today, God, at the baptism and at the picnic as we uh, experience different demonstrations of that and reminders of that. And throughout the rest of our day, God, that we would go and experience your grace and your love anew in deeper and richer ways than we have before. Amen.